My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. This is America. Former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. It is my greatest honor and privilege to have been your president. We will be back in some form. We are still deeply divided. Public health experts warned this was coming unless more was done. And here we are now. Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely. Never before in American history has there been an uprising like this. Of the 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, I don't know how many today are feeling, dear God, what was I thinking? But I would wager a lot more are thinking, let's carry on this fight. Character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters. The 21st century is going to be the American century. Because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the journey of America. Who the hell is Mike Johnson? And how did he get to be Speaker of the House? (laughs) Is any politician in America speaking up over the loss of life in Gaza? Anyone? And Donald Trump thinks he has won something he clearly hasn't again. Why did he storm out of court this week? And how many plea deals will his former loyalists sign? Only one person has the answers. It's Marion McKeown of the Sunday Business Post. Marion, how are you doing this morning? I'm very good, Charlotte, and I hope I do have the answers, or at least some of them anyway, but sure, we'll have a go. There's a lot going on, as I think your summary just suggests. You really do have the answers. For so many people over here, Marion, just want to say uh, the wash of news and the way news is covered over here, particularly American news, makes it almost impossible to just get clarity, just get real clarity on what the hell is happening and the timeline of how it's happening. Talk us through how Mike Johnson emerged from the weeds and suddenly became the front runner and then all of a sudden was the speaker. I thought you were going to say the dregs there, but sure. (laughs) Either way, either way, it's close enough. Okay. You know what? I've been um, dipping in and out of Washington over the last couple of weeks, and I, I think we've touched on the craziness, but I don't think we've quite conveyed it. As in, you've had all of these people now. The, the gallows humour up on the hill has been, quite frankly, pretty entertaining. Because at one stage, I spoke to. I think we mentioned last week that that one of the the Republicans said, "Look, listen, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, between them, couldn't get two hundred seventeen votes here." And another one said, when, when I said, any white smoke? And they said, oh, there's smoke, but it's, it's smoke from burning the place down, called the fire brigade. <laughs> they were literally, they were, it reached a point where we had, it, it, basically the fourth time was the charm. Now, what, what Mike Johnson did here was that he was so, such an unknown quantity, except in one critical area. And we will get to that very quickly. Mike Johnson, to put him in context, he has served three terms in the House. Now, before that, people think that sounds like a long time. Remember, a term in the House is two years. So he's basically in there. He's in his fourth term now. He's in there seven years, give or take a couple of weeks and um, not even. And so he is a low ranking, low, low, low ranking member. But as was said to me, any MAGA guy with a pulse was basically in with a chance. And he happens to have both of those qualifications. And he is MAGA to his fingertips. He is virulently pro-Trump. And last time we checked, he was breathing and speaking. And so we know that he is alive as of now. 
Uh, he's a guy from Shreveport, Louisiana. He's the ultimate sort of conservative wet dream without being crude about it. He He's Mr. Evangelical. He He's a lawyer. Now, he is the difference between him and Jim Jordan and Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise is that he has more grey matter than the other three combined. This is not a dumb guy. This is a guy who's smart. He's a lawyer who is an accomplished lawyer. He's very articulate. He knows his way around radio. He had a talk radio show. I would love to find a conservative at this stage who hasn't had a talk radio <laughs> show because everyone from Mike Pence the whole way down, they've all had their shot on air. And he has his four picture-perfect children who all do good, wholesome activities. His wife is a marriage counsellor, but it's marriage counselling based on Bible, based on Bible studies. So whatever your problem is, she's going to find the answer in the Bible for you, basically. Yeah. So they are that entirely authentic Christian cultural warrior family. And he's very much on the same page as Ron DeSantis on things like gay rights, on the don't say gay stuff, on not having stuff in schools that would, oh God, heaven forbid, make it seem like being gay is something normal, that is not something to be ashamed of. He's a, he's about on all fours with DeSantis on trans, all those areas. And as I say, he got into Congress and he got the vote by largely not making any enemies because, as has been said to me several times, nobody does five, six, seven, eight terms in Congress without meeting people who hate their friggin' guts and who would happily literally roll over them and reverse back twice to make sure. So because he's a relative newbie and he is affable, like this is not a guy, I've only encountered him very briefly on a couple of occasions. He's not obnoxious. He's not truculent or aggressive like Jim Jordan. He hasn't got that emollient, obvious, smarmy weakness that Kevin McCarthy has. He's a guy who's presentable. He he scrubs up well. He shows up well. He was described as Jim Jordan with a jacket and a smile. I think that's a pretty accurate decision <laughs> or description. But he he is every bit as far to the right. He's every bit in the magus, in the weeds of MAGA as Jim Jordan is. Put it this way: Matt Gates is thrilled. Matt Gates was oh, on wow. the Steve Bannon podcast tonight. And Matt Gates said that this is the greatest victory for basically his branch of the Republican Party. He went so far as to say that he adores. He yes, adores And is that yeah. mainly down to his stance on election denial, or yeah. is it is it Matt Gates and him agree on the same barber? Uh, well, that that could be. I don't think Matt Gates would be very flattered. Matt Gates is very proud of his head of hair. Let I'm me tell you. Very proud of and it. I, I don't think he thinks that Mike Johnson would be in the same league when I it comes to I thought I had a quiff. Matt Gates's quiff has got could get elected on its own. Oh, he sees himself as the Republican Elvis, really and truly, he and, just and gives you the creeps. He really does make your skin crawl. But the, the two of them clearly agree the election was stolen, no doubt about it. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is I went back and did a little bit of research and there was a quote from um, Mike Johnson. And all I can say is that he's pretty darn lucky that Dominion, when they were going after Fox News and Sidney Powell and all the rest and that they didn't go after him to 
because his quote, and he, he made quite a lengthy paragraph on this, but I remembered him saying something about it and I went back and he said, talking about Dominion, well, we all know that their software system is suspect because it came from Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. Oh, right. He actually said so that. now th- this was basically the grounds for he not, of course, it's depressing to say that, of course, he voted to block Joe Biden's certification even after the January 6th attacks, even in the hours afterwards. He blocked, he voted to block uh, Biden from the certification when really people, Republicans should have been sobered up by then. But not only that, um, he led the charge. There was a court case that there were so many, there were 60 or 70 court cases. They were all through that. But he led one particular court case which was based in Texas. It was brought in Texas. There were 157 Republican signatories to the amicus brief that was attached. He rounded up all of those names with the proviso that the names would be submitted to Donald Trump and he would be reading them with great interest to make sure that everybody was on board. You know, as veiled threats go in the Republican Party, this was hardly even veiled at all. This was an outright, you better sign this or by God, Donald Trump's going to come after you and you're going to get primaried and your career is going to be over. So he was the architect behind that amicus brief, behind that legal action, which did fail in Texas, incidentally, uh, which was trying to throw out the Electoral College votes for Joe Biden in about half a dozen swing states. Um, This is where Trump became enamored with him because he saw him as, that's one of my guys now. That's the kind of guy that I want in Congress. This is a fighter. That's what he wanted everybody to do. Exactly. Exactly what this guy did. And and this guy didn't just do it, but as I said, he led the charge. He was up there with all of the extremists, but he's one of the um, extremists, one of the MAGA extremists who is more plausible and more personable. And to my mind, that makes him actually more dangerous because he can be very emollient, he's very articulate, he's very smooth, and he's less personally objectionable because he's not as obnoxious as any number of the the guys who, you know, the congressional Kardashians, as they're called, and that is, to my mind, a libel on the Kardashians, but it is the the, the Lauren Bobarts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gateses who are jumping up and down in front of every camera saying whatever they think will get some attention. This guy is more strategic He's more subtle. And to my mind, he's more dangerous for that. But make no mistake, he is absolutely in the tank for Trump. And one of the things that really concerns me, and I think a lot of people, about his appointment is next year, come, um, no, January 6, 2025, which is what, 14, 15 months away, or January 21st, whenever the certification comes, it will be January 6th, in fact. Um, if Joe Biden defeats Donald Trump, and it does look at this stage like they are the two contenders, and the fact that Joe Biden would defeat Donald Trump is by no means a given. But if it happens, this is the guy who will be the Speaker of the House. This is the guy who really can really instigate another campaign, can orchestrate a Congress in, in a way that could be fatal to democracy. And and I, I and he's smart enough, and he knows his way around yeah, the legal system well lawyers. enough, yeah. and to, to do that. And I think, to me, this is the worst possible result. This is worse than having Matt Gates yeah. speaking, because well, at least with a clown like Matt Gates, you yeah. see him coming. Yeah, exactly. He's inept enough to make enough noise along the way. He's like a cat that wears a bell. 
you can hear it so. <laughs> on the a way. Very, a very loud <laughs> clanging bell, yes, yeah. indeed. Now, a couple of things, right? I want to ask, uh, why did it take so long to uncover this perfect guy sitting there perfectly ready at all times? Second of all, he has obviously voted to oppose Ukraine aid. That's right. And he also voted for a shutdown he, to not keep yeah. government open. What did those three things mean? Well, I think that the most significant thing we can take from this is that the moderates in the Republican Party in the House, and there are dozens and dozens of them, there, there are, I would say, 80, 90, 100 of them, they caved. And I think that that is the most fundamentally depressing thing about this, is that they caved, they knew what they were getting with Mike Johnson. They knew that this is a guy who is in lockstep with Matt Gates who's in lockstep with Jim Jordan, but they felt that they couldn't just go another round. And I think that perhaps this was quite strategic. Look, Tom Emmer, um, Tom Emmer is the majority whip. He's the, the third most senior Republican. This is the guy who people thought would be a really acceptable candidate. He knows his way around the House. He's a conservative, but he's got integrity. He was one of only two people of the nine people who threw their hats in the ring in round four. He was only one of two. The other was Austin Scott, who voted to certify Joe Biden, you know, to certify the election results. Now, that might seem like the lowest possible bar for anyone to cross, that you basically voted to uphold a legitimate election in America where the results were beyond doubt and beyond question. But but uh, as I say, Tom Emmer was only one of two people who did that. Given that he showed integrity, he showed independence as the majority whip, he knew his way around the Congress. He knows his way around the House. He knows the other side. He would be a very tough guy. He would be abs- He would be no pushover for the Democrats, but he had an element of respect. But Trump came out, and we spoke about this last week, where we said Trump is orchestrating. He's pulling all the strings in this, and it is scandalous that this is a guy who is, at the end of the day, just another Republican candidate for 2024, a Republican candidate, albeit with 91 criminal charges staring at him down the barrel of of multiple guns in multiple legal jurisdictions, uh, but that he is able to completely orchestrate what happens on Capitol Hill. I mean, talk about separation of powers, you know, and, and the legislature and the judiciary and the executive, but he isn't even the, the executive anymore. He's out for now. But yet, it, it, like any, nobody was getting passed without Trump's seal of approval. And this guy got it in spades. And that's why he got, he, he became the speaker. But as I say, the most fundamentally depressing thing is that the moderates in the House knew exactly what they were voting for. And they went along with it anyway for a quiet mm. life. And it makes me really disappointed in guys like Mike Rogers, who I spoke to several times in the last couple of weeks, who is a decent Republican. He's on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He supports giving more aid to Ukraine. He's a relative moderate. And none of these guys wanted Mike Johnson. They all know what he is. And yet they vote for him because, as I say, the embarrassment. They were worn down by the embarrassment, the humiliation, the fact that Republicans were being seen as that they couldn't organize the proverbial piss up in a brewery and they just did it for a quiet life. And I I find it sort of deeply, as I say, depressing that that they couldn't hold out because this was basically a war of attrition and it was whoever blinked last was going to win this one, whether it was the extremists 
in the Gates camp or whether it was the relative moderates in what we call the Mike Rogers camp. And Gates won. Gates won. And Gates is running around Congress today and tonight and will be tomorrow and for the next God knows many months going, I did it, I did it. And he was even so flippant. He was asked about the damage to Congress and the fact that it had been shut down for more than three weeks and nothing was being done. And he went, well, we take six weeks holidays. So so what? What's another <sighs> three weeks? And as I say, that, that willingness to just take a blowtorch to the place for his own ego, his own ends, and of course, the fact that he's being prodded by Trump every inch of the way. So the, the hardliners, the fanatics, the burn it all down, got their victory. And this is where we are going forward. Now, the one thing that Mike Johnson did say, which I hope he will stick with, is that he does not want to see a shutdown on the 17th of November, which is looming, um, and that he is prepared to sign off on a continuing resolution that might actually keep the government funded, not just until January, but until April. If he did that, that would be a good thing, but he will not do that and sign off on aid for Ukraine. Now, it's interesting that in the Senate, the, the Republican Senate, they are not enthusiastic about this guy at all. Several of them did that thing where they were going, Mike Johnson, who's he? I've never heard of him. And, and basically, Susan Collins, Mitch McConnell, all of the senior senators were kind of looking bemused in front of the cameras and when they were asked for comments and saying they really don't know who this guy is. But the problem for Johnson is that, and he will get some, some leeway from the hardliners because they got their victory. They got their symbolic victory. But at the end of the day, Biden's in the White House. The Senate is narrowly controlled by Democrats. He's got to work with them. He's got to work with them. There will have to be some bipartisan activity on some level, whether he likes it or not, and whether his cronies, Gates, Jordan, etc., like it or not. Uh, so I, I think that he's going to walk into the propellers of basically doing business. Now, the fact that he has no experience in leadership, the fact that he has, I think he'll be a pretty quick study, even today and yesterday. He acquitted himself pretty well when he was basically thrust into the limelight with the gavel and did a press conference immediately afterwards. As I say, he's a smart guy. He's one of the smarter people in that Republican faction. And But where it goes from here, I, I don't know. I think, as I said, at some point he's going to have to realize that he, he, will, he cannot shut the shop down. He will have to work with Democrats. And, and we'll see. We'll see where it all ends up. But it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be pretty. Wednesday night, 22 people killed in a shooting in Maine. Front cover of absolutely every news website in America and across the world. Yet we're looking at the bodies of children day in, day out in Gaza. Yeah. How, how can these two stories not be treated the same? And is there anyone, as I said at the top of the show, is there literally anyone now going, okay, we need a ceasefire. We need, we need to at least allow fuel in. I, I think that we have to separate these two things because the, the shooting in Lewiston in Maine, the mass shootings there, and as you say, at, at the time we're speaking, it's 22 people dead. That number may well rise. There were many more people wounded. Um, and the gunman was, was a, a U.S. Army reservist, was still at large, again, at, at, at the time that we're speaking. But, but I think that the continuum of gun violence, this was the 
523rd, I think, or thereabouts mass shooting in America so far this year. And this is a story that goes to, you know, we've spoken about it so many times in this show, and it always does have a the same response in America where you have, you know, professions of shock and thoughts and prayers on one side and, you know, calls for gun control on the other. And the needle never moves an inch either way. It stays the same. But I think to to talk about what has been happening in Gaza and to talk about the shocking loss of life, the shocking, the, 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 the just... Carnage. The, the carnage, but not just that, the willful annihilation of international law by by the Israeli government at this stage and by the, the unity government and by the war cabinet, where I think you have to look at... Now, let, let's just take it as a given that the circumstances that led to this war are entirely different. But what is happening in Gaza now, in terms of what the Israeli government is doing, is very, very similar to what has been happening in the Ukraine, the targeting of civilians, the blowing up apartment buildings, the blowing up of hospitals. We saw that the third oldest church in the world was destroyed this week in Gaza. It was a Greek Orthodox church. But not only that, it was destroyed with all of the people who were sheltering in there and and knowing that there were people taking refuge in there. And we know and this is not disputed by the Israeli government, that at least 70 of them were killed, probably a lot more than that. So you have what's happening here. Now, the Israeli government says, and they are correct in this, that Hamas does use hospitals, it does use schools, it does use churches um, as, as basically human shields for its headquarters. It will burrow beneath them, it will stockpile stuff beneath them, it has this whole tunnel system, which has been described to me by a a, a member of the Lebanese security forces um, as being like the New York subway system. He said that it is unbelievably complex. It's unbelievable. And that this, of course, would be a nightmare for the Israelis if they do go in with a ground invasion, because it will be booby-trapped. It, there will be landmines everywhere. It will be uh, an absolute... I mean, of course, the civilian casualties and suffering will increase exponentially, but the Israelis will suffer as well. Now, I think, look, we have to preface this, Charlotte, by saying Hamas knew when they carried out those brutal attacks, when they slaughtered 1,400 Israelis, they knew that Israel would turn around and do exactly what Israel is doing. They set basically a trap for Israel, but Israel did not have to walk into that trap in the manner that it has done. What we're looking at here is a situation where Benjamin Netanyahu, who is the absolutely discredited, corrupt and weak Israeli prime minister, who is now trying to salvage his own political career and his political reputation and presumably stay out of jail because he is facing three corruption trials by hitting Hamas and, and the Palestinian people as hard as he can by sating a bloodlust that has risen in Israel in the aftermath of these attacks. Now, Biden has repeatedly warned Israel in public and in private not to do what America did after 9-11, not to basically strike out out of revenge and rage and just a a blind desire for vengeance. And I have to say that initially, after the 9-11 attacks, in the initial weeks and, and even early months that followed, George W. Bush was very measured. He went to a mosque. He warned the Americans not to blame 
the Arab people, the Arab Americans and Muslims for this attack. He made it clear this is a terrorist organization. This is not the the Muslim world. And he stressed that Islam was about peace. It was a peaceful religion. But in Israel at the moment, the response has been so ferocious, so brutal. And any calls, and there have been calls from France, there have been calls from America, there have been I thought that Tony Blinken's address at the UN this week was very significant. And that obviously required a lot of discussion behind the scene where he called for a humanitarian pause so that aid could be delivered. But what we're seeing going into Gaza at the moment is disgraceful. There have been fewer than 100 truckloads of aid in the last two weeks. Bear in mind that, as we said last week, normally more than 100 trucks every day go into Gaza and have, have always, because the people desperately need those supplies of food, water, medicine, just to survive. So at a time when their survival is absolutely under, under threat, at a time when more than a million have been displaced, at a time when tens of thousands have been injured at this stage, there is nothing going in. So you have around a million people who are fleeing to southern Gaza, which is still being attacked, by the way, um, by Israel. We saw that one of the, the Gaza correspondent for Al Jazeera, his family was killed in an attack on a camp in southern um, Gaza on Wednesday. So it's not, Israel keeps insisting that it's attacking northern Gaza and that people who go to the south will be safe. But this is just not true. There were questions asked earlier today, uh, uh, legitimate questions about what about people in hospitals? What about people who are ill and dying? What about the premature babies who are in hospitals in northern Gaza and in Gaza City? What do you what do you do for these people? There's no electricity, there's no power, there are no hospitals to transfer them to, there are no ambulances, there are no roads because they've been pounded. And basically the response was, well, the that's up to the humanitarian agencies. But now Netanyahu has also said that he's going to rescind visas for the UN, he's going to rescind the visa for the UN humanitarian director who has been working in Gaza, it seems that the people who work for UNRWA are going to have their visas rescinded so that they won't be able to go into Gaza through Israel. Um, so none of this is making sense. And Antonio Guterres, who is the UN Secretary General, I parsed his speech very closely. And, it, you know, Israel has reacted with a totally disproportionate fury, in my view, to what he said, because what he said was entirely reasonable. He condemned Hamas, he condemned what they did, but he also condemned Israel for targeting civilian populations and for failing to adhere to the basic international treaties that govern the conduct of, of hostilities, the rules of war, the Geneva Conventions, etc. And, uh, you know, I, I think at this stage that as Biden did say, but clearly didn't say forcefully enough, Israel is now at a point where it risks squandering the very legitimate and deserved sympathy and support that it did have in the aftermath of those barbaric attacks by Hamas, because it is responding with a barbarity that it is pretty well. What does it take to squander yeah. it? I don't understand yeah. what it takes to squander it. Like what has to happen? There's 350,000 Palestinians still in northern Gaza, and yeah. Islamophobic and anti-Semitic incidents are spiking all across America. The statistics are there. Is it that for a politician in America this week to come out and say, we need to pause here and allow humanitarian aid in is 
political suicide. Is that still the case? No, I don't think so, because I think that, as I say, Tony Blinken said it at the UN, Joe Biden has been saying something that is pretty similar. He's been cautioning it, and, and but his warnings are now sounding impotent. Even with the Australian Prime Minister, he spoke about the need to allow humanitarian aid and the need for humanitarian corridors. He's cautioned again and again about Israel not being blinded by rage and about it having a proportionate response. It seems that there are two things going on here, that Biden is talking quite forcefully to Israel. and There are briefings every day that journalists hear that we all sign up to. And people like John Kirby, who is the National Security Council spokesperson, who is a straight shooter and is very well respected by journalists. Um, And you have the Pentagon, you have Department of State. And it seems that if you sort of read the subtext of what they're all saying, um, Biden, it seems that America is thus far largely responsible for Israel holding off on a ground attack. But that is a very temporary thing. And it seems that um, Netanyahu is determined to go in to Gaza with a ground attack. Now, America has its own concerns because there are American troops all over the Middle East. There are American targets all over the Middle East. And it's not just that um, America is deeply concerned at the prospect of this becoming a regional war, um, at the prospect of Lebanon being dragged in, at the prospect of Hezbollah, which, as we've said before, has 100,000 highly trained, highly disciplined fighters and a huge arsenal of rockets and other weapons. Now, just to put Hezbollah in perspective, when I was working in Syria and on the Syrian border and in Lebanon back in 2013 to 20, the end of 2015, um, it was the Hezbollah fighters that turned around the basically the civil war in Syria. They, the, is, the Syrian president, who is a butcher and a dictator, um, Bashar al-Assad, was losing that war until Hezbollah fighters rode in behind him and they turned it around. Hezbollah fighters are notoriously brutal and, as I say, notoriously disciplined and well-trained. And the last thing Israel and indeed America wants is to see a front opening up with Hezbollah and, and dragging in Lebanon because that then causes all kinds of other complications. But also on the West Bank, and Biden was quite forceful about this this week, he said that basically Israel has to stop these settlers, these Israeli settlers who have really used the attacks in Gaza, Gaza uh, by Hamas, I should say, um, as a pretext to basically attack Palestinians living in the West Bank, to terrorize them into leaving their homes, abandoning their homes, and to push them out of their homes and then to take them over. And this has been part of Netanyahu's strategy all along, and it's now been accelerated under the pretext of the outrage caused by the Hamas attacks. And as we know, Gaza and the West Bank is, is run by two different groups. Fatah and Mohammed, Mahmoud Abbas run the West Bank, and Hamas runs Gaza. And, but yet, it's, you know, the spillover is causing mayhem and untold suffering for Palestinians in Gaza as well. There have been over 100 Palestinians in the West Bank, I beg your pardon, in the West Bank, who have just been shot by Israeli troops in the last week. It's not even meriting a mention. So the situation is really becoming intolerable. Now, Biden is in a tricky situation in that the behind-the-scenes talks, as I say, it seems that, that the agencies, the National Security Council, the Pentagon State, all want journalists to know, look, but for the United States, things will be a whole lot worse. 
but that's actually not good enough. So when they're saying, look, Israel is holding off on a ground invasion and they're saying we haven't spoken out against it, we haven't told them not to do it, but we are counseling them, we are advising them. And that's so, as I say, between the lines, they're saying, don't go in, don't go in wholesale ground invasion. And apparently what's happening now is America and France is also rowing in and other EU leaders are saying, look, if you're going to go into Gaza, make it a targeted surgical strikes, get your intelligence, get your ducks lined up and then go in where you think Hamas are hiding, where, where they have their weapons stockpiled, where, where you believe the, 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 the Hamas militants and fighters are hiding. But you also have to remember there are still 218 or thereabouts hostages who are being held in Gaza. And well, hold that thought, yeah. because I do want to talk about those hostages. We will also talk about some lighter news. This is obviously a dreadful situation, extremely hard to watch. And I'm sorry for anybody that is affected by it. Uh, we will talk more about it, but I do want to find out what exactly is happening with those hostages. I remember in the 80s, hostages were a big thing and it was yeah. it was constantly in the news. And of course, Ireland was affected by that. But what exactly is, how does this play out? What does that side of this conflict play out? And aren't those hostages one of the linchpins in ending the conflict? We'll also cover a lot more of the stories that are just on the periphery of the news at the moment, including Donald Trump's temper tantrum, it seems, in New York, the plea deals that his cohorts are taking, and Alaska Airlines, an off-duty pilot accused of trying to shut off an airliner's engines mid-flight. Why? He said he'd taken some magic mushrooms 48 hours before the incident. We'll talk about that and an awful lot more every single week in double-sized episodes over on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. Ready? You have the cameras rolling? This is America. A lot of people who would probably consider themselves liberal have done very well financially under the Donald Trump four years. You encouraged espionage against our people. You condemn any interference by Russia in the American election. By Russia or anybody else. Russia, please, if you can, get us Hillary Clinton's emails. Please, Russia, please. To renew America, we must revitalize our democracy.